Greetings, Patriots. This is Perry Green with God in America. Today, I'm going to interview Charlie Meadows. And for those of you that are familiar with Oklahoma and Oklahoma politics, you know that Charlie is a legend. So, Charlie, thank you for taking time to visit with us today. Well, that's very kind of you to say that. I'm not for sure that that's quite correct. I'm probably my name's cursed by about as many people as there are that love me. I live in Logan County, and I tell people there's three kinds of people here. Those that love me, those that hate me, and those that haven't met me yet. Okay. And once they do, they, they usually get on one side or the other of that deal, you know. So. Good, good. Well, I met Charlie years ago at the Oak Pack meetings, and Charlie started the Oak Pack, the Oklahoma Conservative Political Action Committee. And uh, Charlie, would you tell us how you started that? Yeah, um, I ran for the state senate in 1990 against an entrenched senator, Enoch Kelly Haney, very famed Indian artist, very good artist. I just thought he was a lousy senator. <laughs> and I looked for someone else to run, and nobody seemed to want to run against him. The district only had 21% Republican registration. Oh. And even the party said, if you don't have at least 25, you don't have a chance to win. And so I, I couldn't find anyone else, and I thought, you know, if I don't do this, then he's going to put his name on the dotted line, pay his fee, $200 is what it was at that time, and if no one files against him, he gets his money back, and he's a senator for four more years. And I just didn't think that was healthy, so I threw my hat in the ring. And I actually ended up with almost 44% of the vote. Wow. Interesting part of it, there were three partial counties in it and one full county. So it had been gerrymandered not only to make sure it was always a Democrat Senate seat, but the Democrat would be from Seminole County, which is where Kelly Haney was from. So in just to give you an idea, in Seminole County, for every Republican that voted, nine and a half Democrats voted. And I ended up with 42% of the vote in Seminole County. So it was a respectable race. It was a census year, 1990. Kelly Haney got on the Senate redistricting committee, drew me out of the district, put me in a, a seat with a Republican. My state representative did the same thing. So okay. their ideas were, Sonny Boy, if you want to run again, run against a Republican. Okay. So one of the people that helped me a lot in that effort was an attorney bright young attorney named Tim Green. Tim decided he wanted to run for the state chairman's race. I couldn't talk him out of it, and he'd asked me to be his campaign chairman. It helped me. I had to help him. So Tim and I started meeting every Wednesday for lunch. And invariably, after we'd plan out what we were going to do for the week, our conversation would break down into discussion about spiritual things and political things. And after about three, four weeks of that, I said, Tim, why don't we invite some other guys? And he said, good idea. So the, the first person to join us was Jim Marshall, one of the, uh, the smartest political strategists that, that I've ever met, a man that mentored me. He used to be the state coordinator for national right to work in Oklahoma. Okay. Jim was uh, brilliant when uh, the, I'm trying to think of her name now, that won the state labor commissioner, Brenda Renault. When she won that, she hired Jim as her chief of staff. Okay. And Jim was the one that orchestrated two major, major improvements in that. Everything good that happened while she was in her first term was because of Jim's expertise. But So anyway, 
we were unsuccessful. We ran against Clinton Key, who was Don Nichols' pick for state chairman. He was the incumbent state chairman. Ran against against him. We came in second in the three-man race with about 40% of the vote. So we were about 5% away from forcing Clint into a, a second ballot. I liked Clint. I just uh, thought Tim would be a better, had some better ideas, I thought. Anyway, we just kept meeting. A group started growing, and Rush Limbaugh went on TV for a year. We had these things pop up all over Oklahoma City, rush rooms. They were called rush rooms. You had restaurants that would, every every day at lunch, they would have a special menu geared to Rush Limbaugh's program. Just give you an example. Teddy Kennedy special was two pieces of white bread with nothing in between. <laughs> Funny. <laughs> Whereas a Rush Limbaugh special was a Dagwood with everything you could think of in between. Just, you know, humorous things. And these popped up. So the, the Santa Fe Motel had a restaurant, and that was one of the Rush rooms. We, we moved our meeting to there, and you had all these Rush Limbaugh people in there. And, but there was already a group of us, and... Pretty soon they'd be leaning over, listening to our conversations and everything. And, and so we'd tell them to join them. And we just kept growing. Eventually we had to leave that restaurant. And we've, we've been in many different ones. But So it was actually Tim and I, co-founder of it. For about the first probably five or six years, we were a debating society. Okay. And so most of what we debated was spiritual issues and political issues. The two things you're not supposed to talk about, right. politics and in God. But that's exactly what we, we talked about. And the, um, the truth is, uh, we had a lot of fun. But one day I proposed to everyone that while debating societies have a lot of fun, they don't ever accomplish anything. And we had passed term limits in Oklahoma. They were two cycles away from being two election cycles away from being fully implemented. So I suggested to everyone that we create a political action committee. We would come up with an objective, which was to improve the quality of the state legislature, gain control by the Republicans rather than the Democrats, and a strategy of how to get there. And everyone liked, seemed to like that idea, so that's when we actually formed the Oklahoma Conservative Political Action Committee. Okay. If you count the years that we were a debating society, we're in our 29th year. Okay. And Perry, I wouldn't, you've been to a lot of our meetings, right. but I normally tell people that in 29 years, I mean, normally tell people we meet every Wednesday for lunch, but we have missed eight Wednesdays in 29 How about years that? now. Yeah. So, so I guess we're not as committed as we should be. You <laughs> That's know. funny. Three of those have been Christmas. And <laughs> <laughs> That's good. But, but well, anyway. well, I'm not an Oklahoman, okay. but I've been here 15 years now. My question here is, Oklahoma used to be a Democrat state. and yes. it, Are you all the reason it has shifted to Republican? We're a part of it. A lot of people credit us with the the takeover of the state legislature, and that would be incorrect to credit us solely for that. But we've certainly been a part of it. As a result of that, I've been invited to speak in probably a dozen other states. Oh. And so I have a canned speech 
and it's how Oklahoma went from a deep dark blue to a bright red state in 20 years. Okay. Okay. Now, the first part of that speech, Perry, I established the fact of how deep dark blue we were. For example, until 2004, the Republicans only controlled the state house one time. Mm. That's 1920-21. How about that? That is the only time until 2004. Okay. Okay? Statehood was 1907. Right. It wasn't until 2008, 101 years later, that we gained control of the Senate. First time ever. Okay? Yes. And a lot of people don't realize this, but we have probably only had, uh, we're probably in our fifth Republican governor of 115 years we're only in our fifth Republican governor. I believe that's correct. And so, and then when I ran, for example, in uh, 1990, we have 48 senators, 17 were Republican, but the rest were Democrats. We actually lost three Senate seats that year, so we went down to 14. Okay. In the House, it was about probably. I don't know, 35, maybe 38 Republican House members out of 101. So over 60 Democrats in the House. Just to show you, and, and then in our federal offices, at that time we had six U.S. representatives and two senators. One of our U.S. representatives was a Republican, one senator was a Republican. So we had five U.S. representatives that were Democrats and, and one that was a senator. Today, we have two Republican U.S. senators, five Republican U.S. House members. Of the ten wide state elected offices, like governor, lieutenant governor, the three corporation commissioners, insurance commissioner, auditor, attorney general, such as that, all ten of them are Republican. Right. In the Senate, it is 39 Republicans, 39 to 10 on the Democrats, and in the House, I believe it is 85 Republicans to 16, or maybe it's 81 to 19, I'm not sure. But we have super majorities right. everywhere. And another thing is kind of interesting now. In my lifetime, and I'm 75 now, but in my lifetime, when we're talking president, Oklahoma's only voted for a Democrat one time. Really? So there was always this disconnect. When it went to the national presidential race that everybody paid attention to, we voted Republican in Oklahoma. LBJ is the only time that? that we voted for a Democrat. And that was primarily because our U.S. Senator, Robert S. Kerr, and LBJ were both senators together and very close best friends. And I think a lot of Oklahomans felt like if LBJ was in office, Kerr could bring home a lot of bacon. Right. Okay. Right. So anyway, things have shifted a lot. And what we have tried to do is set a high standard of what I would say, let's take biblical principles and translate them into public policy. Okay, good. So we've tried to teach a lot of people what that would look like. And one of the great failures in our country today, Perry, and it, it lays right at the feet of the church, 
If you look back to ancient Israel, and let's look at Proverbs 30, the virtuous woman, okay, which some people think is a type of the church. But you look at the virtuous woman and you look at those things that describe her as being virtuous. One of them is she allowed her husband to sit in the gates. Okay? Now, if you, if you look at what the city gates were, all your cities were walled. Okay? Your, your great cities were walled. And they would have gates into them. And as you would walk through the gate... On each side were porticos, and the elders of the city would would set in these porticos, and as strangers would come in, they would quiz them to find out what their business was, and if their intent was evil, they didn't allow them to enter the city. If their intent was good, they allowed them to come in to do business and things like that. Also, under siege, they would fill those porticos with soldiers. So if the soldiers, if, if the invading army was able to breach the gate, as they came through that gateway, not only at the end of that gate would be troops, but all on the sides, and they were pretty strong defensive mechanisms. But that's a type of what really is God's calling for His church, for the church to be the moral standard of what good and bad is. And for the church to speak out against that which is evil and to promote that which is good and to oppose that which is evil. The church went to sleep for a long time, Perry, in this country in our luxury and in our ease. And we've laid down on that job. And any time the church has removed itself from being that standard of good, it created a vacuum, and the vacuums don't exist. Something's going to fill it. Right. And so when the church backed out of being salt and light and civil government, then that became a magnet for all kinds of evil. And we're seeing, we're seeing the fruit of that. We've been building toward this evil for decades. We're in the fruit-bearing stage of all that seed sowing for a long time. And that's why we're in such a precarious place in America today. While there are literal things politically and all that we need to do to correct that, the real heart and soul of that is spiritual, that's right. Barry. And if we don't get our... I, I like to say it this way. If we as Christians don't live a substantive life, in other words, an obedient life to the Lord Jesus, and if we fail to engage our culture... We will lose our culture. That's right. There has been no great nation or empire any time in history that didn't eventually collapse. And to think that America is bulletproof is historical foolishness. Do you think we can come back? Yes, I do. I really do. And it won't be easy, but what it will take is an awakening. Okay. So we hear this term a lot. Let's let's get back to normal. Well, I'm sorry. I understand what that means. There's a lot of things that we got to do that we enjoyed and things like that, and those aren't all necessarily evil. Don't don't misunderstand me. But normal's what got us to where we are today. Yeah. We can never go back to normal. Whatever we get back to, as far as let's say the things we enjoy in life, family reunions. And, 
civic organizations that we've you know been a part of and and many fun things that we've done just entertainment vacations things not though camping fishing hunting none of those things are evil within themselves until they become an idol in your life True. and you devote too much time to them so normal what normal should look like is a serious walk with god and each one of us devoting a portion of our lives to our civic duties and then after we've done those important things then then with the rest of our time let's let's have our picnics and let's do some things like that sure but we can't go back to uh, the parties and the picnics and everything else and neglect this that's never going to work right and so we've got to understand that the things of this world are temporal there are spiritual things i'm not just talking about our life after our life here with god but i'm talking about here and now there are spiritual things that we need to do because we are god's vice regents on the earth here right. we are we are his ambassadors if we're christians we are his ambassadors and we are to represent him i have a very good um, christian minister friend and one time uh, I heard him say that we should find our pleasure in doing his will. And the more I have walked with God and things, the more I realize is that's where true peace and satisfaction and pleasure is, is being obedient to what he calls you to. That's, that's real life there. Yeah, Solomon says that's our purpose, to, mm-hmm. to fear God and keep his commandments. Yes. And, and that's the whole. Yeah. One of the things that God in America that I'm trying to do, trying to go back to biblical things, I'm trying to tie in American history, and you can, of course, read the Bible and you see God at work, all in that. Then as you read American history, you see God at work in America through the government and the, and the, the revolution and so on. Why not now? I want to see God at work now. And really, I think what you just said is that if we become obedient to God, we're going to see it. Yes. And so, yeah. so maybe that great awakening's coming, and we can really firsthand see the mm-hmm. things that that God is is going to do. Perry, we we've had Linda and I've become acquainted with a couple out of Texas that are the development directors for a ministry called Elam Ministries. Okay. okay? Uh-huh. Elam comes from the Elamites of the Old Testament and would be, they were in what would be today modern Iran. Okay. Okay. So it's an interesting thing. This ministry was formed a little over 20 years ago. And the first Christian missionary to go into Iran was the late 1600s. Did a translation of the New Testament into Persian language. He really said, I've not had any fruit come from my effort. He said, I've really not even planted any seeds. But he says, what I have done is remove some of the stones out of the field to make that ground better. And so we kept seeing a succession of of ministries that would go into Iran, but the fruit was very limited and then there was a couple that went to Iran with their three daughters, I want to say in 1979, I'm not sure on this. They went there, they were traveling, 
discipling some of the believers that were spread out through the nation. And they had a tragic car wreck and all three of their children mm-hmm. were killed in that car wreck. They still dedicated the rest of their lives to that ministry there. Great deal of prayer and such as that. Anyway, before the revolution of 1978 or 9, the government, Iran was a pretty modern country. Right. They were open to and respectful of Christian groups that would come over. But the people of Iran were mostly well-educated and fairly prosperous. They just weren't hungry. And while the government allowed the missions and missionaries and things, there just was very little fruit. And then the mullahs took over. And then oppression hit. Right. And then people began to lose hope and become disenchanted with Islam and everything. And just a few years ago, Elam was it was birthed Elam Ministries and the first thing they did is they translated a modern copy of the New Testament took um, I think seven years to translate that took another five years to get the Old Testament translated into modern Persian but they uh, they ordered 10,000 copies of this New Testament the, the executive director was in Oklahoma City or Norman last night and we were attending a meeting and when they got those 10,000 in they were thinking my goodness this is a lot of a lot of bibles how are we going to distribute all these and it wasn't long before they were having to order 20,000 and 50,000 additional how about ones. that and today they're right at maybe just a little over 3 million copies of this new testament So what is happening in Iran, we're seeing a sovereign move of God. Mm -hmm. And anytime there is a sovereign move of God, where he's actually performing miracles, and there's dreams and visions and miracles that are going on, people that experience that, man, they come to the Lord. And when they come to the Lord, they're really dedicated, and they're fearless, and they're excited about sharing the gospel. So Iran went from an estimated 5,000 believers. It's considered, the church is considered to be growing faster in Iran than any country in the world. There's between one and two million believers now. That's amazing. Over the last 20 years. I mean, there are people coming to the Lord in Iran in a Muslim nation. It's very dangerous. There's no above ground church. Everything is underground now. We had this couple at, at Fairview Baptist Wednesday night. And one of the reasons we did that is if the church does not stand up against the Marxist, godless, humanist, Marxist invasion and effort to gain control of America, which really they're in control right now. They are. We're just under soft tyranny, not hard tyranny yet. But if we succumb to this, our buildings will be worthless for church. If they do allow church, it'll be a government-paid pastor who will be preaching approved sermons that will be greatly compromised with the truth of God, if they even allow that. So the church will have to go underground. Right. And I think it's important to study an, an understanding of what that's like. So you, you've got this perfect storm over in Iran. 
God is moving sovereignly. When people come to know the Lord Jesus, they're hungry to share the gospel with others. In many Muslim countries, when a person becomes a believer, usually that person is kicked out of the family. Sometimes they're killed. They're dead to the family, whatever. Right. What's happening in Iran, when a person becomes a believer, more times than not, the rest of the family follows suit. And so you have real, uh, real events. I, I just want to tell a, a couple of stories. There were three young uh, college boys. They were drinking and doping up one night in Iran. There's satellite TV in there and a Christian program on it. They got to mocking this program. And they were, they were ridiculing it and mocking it. And when it came time to do, a, I guess, a, a, maybe a sinner's prayer or something like that, they, they played along with that, you know. And then they passed out. And the next morning when they woke up, all three of them had, had exactly the same dream. Oh, scared them to death. And today all three of them are aggressive. I won't call them evangelists, but believers that are sharing the gospel right. with others. Here's another story that's really interesting. And uh, Jack Spates, the former wrestling coach at OU, we were in his home last night, and he's been helping this ministry for the last eight years. So one of the stories that he shared was uh, a lady had been at a meeting. She was well-dressed. She came out. She needed a taxi. And wasn't wise for her to be in a taxi by herself, but it was the circumstances. And this is in Iran. And so this she flags down this taxi. And this taxi driver is looking at this woman, staring at her, uh, from top to bottom over and over again and it makes her a little uncomfortable but she needs to be someplace quickly so she gets in the cab with him and he's driving very slow and he's he's intently looking at her through the mirror and she said sir could you please speed up I need to be at a certain place in a certain time and he apologized he said I want to tell you why I was staring at you. He said, forgive me, but he said, last night I had a dream and I saw you in this dream down to your shoes and everything about you. That's when she realized this was one of those sovereign, right. God-divine appointments. And she said, I want you to know, sir, God arranged this because my Father in Heaven wants me to tell you about His Son, Jesus Christ. Yes. And she shared Jesus with Him and gave Him that New Testament. And so they're speeding along and she hears the voice of the Lord says, give Him your phone number. And she wants to protest about that. And she's arguing with God and He says, give Him your phone number. So she said, Sir, my Father in Heaven wants me to give you my name and my phone number. Unheard of, very dangerous normally. Gives it to him. A few months later, she gets a call. It's a lady. Ask, is this so-and-so? I said, yes, it is. I want you to know, I've been married, I've been in a very abusive relationship. We have one daughter. And my husband has physically abused both of us, mentally abused us. It's been a terrible life. 
But you gave him a New Testament when he was driving his cab. And I want you to know, he's a believer today in the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's the most loving husband and father you could ever hope for. So there's just a couple little examples. Right. So when you have God moving sovereignly, you have believers that are willing to be obedient, even if it costs them their life. Right. And and then you have the church actually training one another and teaching them how to disciple one another. They have a, a thing called shofar, which means journey, and it's a plan. So let's say you met the Lord three months ago, and you're pretty jazzed up for the Lord, and you lead someone else to the Lord. Well, you're three months older than he is. Someone's been discipling you. Now it's your turn to disciple yes, that person. That's right. See, too many times in America, uh, we don't grow and mature enough because we don't spend enough time in the Word. So when we witness, our witness is, hey, I want you to come here, our preacher at right. church. Okay? That's right. That's right. But there's a job for that preacher to do at church. But I'm sorry, shepherds don't bear lambs. Sheep are supposed to bear little lambs. Right. That's our job. That's right. To gain enough of the word that we can lead other people to a relationship with the Lord. And then that shepherd helps to disciple us all there, you know. Very so good. Kind of got off track oh, here no, a little it's, bit. Oh, no, it's but, fine. Those but, are great stories. Yeah. I, I want to hear more. Is there a contact for Oak Pack or a, a website or anything that you'd like to give out for people? Yeah. The website is ocpac.us oakpack.us and Perry I, I like to tease people I, I tell them now that I no longer write the weekly email it's really high quality <laughs> so you need to understand I'm an ordained minister okay. but in my years of leading Oakpack up until about seven years ago when I stepped aside I, I had a little more of a political edge in the weekly emails um, I infused a lot of Christian Judeo-Christian values in it Bob is more of a theologian. He's learning the political aspect. Okay. But he is greatly up the the theological content okay. for Oak Pack. And it's it's an amazing thing. You know, at, at our peak when I was there, we had over five thousand people on our email list. We had a lot of impact. Uh, a lot of times we were able to kill legislation or promote legislation. We were able to get bad guys defeated and good guys put in office. Our enemies kind of eventually measured us, and I was kind of running up against a, a brick wall and how to go further. Of course, writing that weekly email, the last 10 years at Oak, when I was president of Oak Pack, I was only putting in 25 to 40 hours a week volunteer time. Yeah. Trying to run a business, keep my marriage together, which sure. we just celebrated our 50th that's, anniversary that's, on 9 11. Congratulations. Yeah. But uh, I was burned out. And so I stepped aside. There's some things I needed to take care of in my family and, and wanted to do. Uh, when Dan Fisher ran for governor, he kind of sucked me back in a little bit. Right. And Bob took over. Uh, I got back. We, we'd spent all summer of 2018 in Western Canada and Alaska and got back and Bob asked me to do a project and I did it and he said that's great he said would, would you mind doing this deal and I said now Bob I'm, I'm, I'm wanting to kind of slow down a little bit ratchet down my 
my activism a little bit. I said, I know who you are, but just just do this. You know, Bob just doesn't take no for an answer. <laughs> and next thing you know, I'm sucked back in as deep as I ever was, you know. That's <laughs> so when God is kind of giving you some giftings and a calling and things yes. that, again, that's where your real joy and your peace is and your, your happiness. And uh, uh, he didn't give me the talents. He gave me whatever they are not to be used right. and so it's it's our job you know the apostle paul says i am what i am by the grace of god if you really understand that anything you ever accomplish in life it's really not your own doing that's the grace of god that allowed you gave you that gifting that allowed you you'll never know how many doors he's opened for you or whatever and so that's why there is really no excuse for being lifted up in pride or anything like that once you understand that, it's a lot easier to be remain humble. That's true. That's true. <laughs> well, we're going to wind this down right now, and we're going to talk to Charlie some more in future podcasts. And Charlie, I just want to thank you again for your time. I really appreciate and respect you. As I think you're a great man. And thank you, sir. That's very kind of you saying so. That. And until next time, praise the Lord for that. <laughs> yes, exactly right. <laughs> Till next time, I want to encourage you to keep the light burning. <laughs>